Ace is the place with the helpful hardware, folks. It's Ace's biggest LED light bulb sale of the year. Right now, buy one, get one free on our best-selling LED light bulbs. Our four-pack of LED bulbs is $9.99, and our two-pack of LED floodlights is only $12.99. Buy one, get one free. There's no limit on how much you can save, so stock up now. Hurry in. Buy one, get one free on long-lasting 10-year LED bulbs, now through Monday, only at your neighborhood Ace. See participating stores for details. You are locked on, locked on, locked on Hornets, your daily Charlotte Hornets podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. And with that, welcome in Hornets fans. This is Locked On Hornets presented by Hive Talk Live. It's Hornets Talk for the hardcore fan. I'm Doug Branson, joined by the only man Allen Iverson did not shout out during his Hall of Fame speech, David B. Walker. You can't see me right now, but I'm shaking my head. It was crushing AI, but I understand there was a long, long list of people. It, it really was, but you were not on it, unfortunately. Mm-mm. No. Or was I? You didn't, I? maybe. Lot, I need to go lot, back a and... Lot of, a lot of nicknames. I need to go... <laughs> did a Did a D money get dropped in there, maybe? <laughs> hey, football is back, and if you're not listening to the Locked On Panthers podcast to get your Carolina Panthers updates, you should be. It's hosted by Steve Reed, and uh, it's a really great listen. Go check it out. But can we can we talk about football for two seconds, David? Let's talk about it. I don't I don't even really want to talk about the Panthers. I, we just have to talk about Denver and what happened to that game. The shots that our precious oh. Cam Newton took to his cranium. I don't like it. It seems to me, David, like Denver has been dirty for so long. Whether it was shot blocking or shots of the head, it's just that that Denver, through many coaching regimes, it's been dirty for so long. Certainly going back to the Super Bowl, right? I mean, and they had some shots in there. I mean, going into that game, I was like, well, there's no way they can do some of the stuff they did in the Super Bowl and get away with it because that was a Super Bowl. (laughs) But then they go out and just start launching themselves into people's faces, and uh, apparently they can. But before that, I mean, even in the Mike Mike Shanahan Mm -hmm. era, I mean, they would do these these whip blocks and different things, chop blocks. You know, I just feel like Denver has a culture of, of dirty play whether it be on the line or defense Uh-oh. i'm i'm surprised that the locked on broncos podcast hasn't uh, come in here and clipped our wires yet i mean that's <laughs> well, no, <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding altitude. adam kenny does a great job locked on broncos it's the altitude as with everything it's, it's just the altitude <laughs> it's going to their going to their head and so they got to go after uh, you know other players heads apparently all right well, uh, we're part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Podcast on your favorite teams delivered week daily. Go to audioboom.com and search Locked On. Find your podcast for your team. And we're putting the live back in Hive Talk Live Tuesdays and Thursdays beginning this fall on YouTube and Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Hive Talk Live for updates about when that's going down. If you have a question or a comment or you want to sponsor the show, prices have never been lower Email us at buzzbuzz at hivetalklive.com. Okay, let's get into this. David, I have two words for you. Jumbotron. On Friday, (laughs) Friday Night Lights fans. On Friday, fans got their first look at the Hornets' brand new scoreboard installed just in time for the 2016-17 season. It is one of the largest scoreboards in the NBA and the only scoreboard that is fully 
1080p. The sideline screens are two and a half times larger than the old screens, which have been repurposed in the main concourse. The board also features baseline screens and two high-definition screens in its underbelly. Uh, you'll hear that word a lot, underbelly. Yeah. It's a, not a word you hear very often, but it, it certainly applies to this board once you see it. You'll go, oh yeah, I get it, underbelly. Uh, it can be uh, viewed by courtside and some lower-level fans, those screens in the underbelly. Also, a three-dimensional hive design underneath the board that can be turned any color. And that's not all. The Hornets also installed a video board in each corner and two rows of LED ribbon boards that go all the way around the inside of the Spectrum Center. So all that to say, David, that Hornets fans will have a lot more to look at this season. I had the pleasure of sitting down with Hornets Executive Vice President and Chief Sales and Marketing Officer Pete Gwelly to find out more. The scoreboard has been revealed. The fans have seen it. It's massive. It's bright. It's colorful. It was also a long time in the making, was it not? Well, yeah, we started the process in January of 2015. Uh, you know, we, we had the opportunity to get the new scoreboard, and we really wanted to be deliberate about the process. So, uh, you know, we're really pleased with the end result, but there was a lot of work that went into getting it there, and a lot of it was really focused on the design. You know, we've been really specific about how we wanted to roll the brand out. It's so important to so many people, and we want to make sure that every single aspect of that is done right, and the video board's another extension of the brand. What do you think will jump out most to fans who haven't had a chance to see it in person yet? When they when they step into the arena and they see it for the first time, what jumps out? Yeah, I think there's a few aspects. You know, the first, the sheer size. It's just, it's just massive. The square footage of the board makes it top five in the league. The side panel is the tallest in the NBA, and you saw those screens underneath. Those are the largest in the league as well. So we, you know, we really believe when you look at the size, you look at the resolution, you look at the design, that it's very unique, and it's one of the most special boards in the league, if not the best. We have to talk about the underbelly, the purple and teal honeycomb hive. You've got the two huge high-definition screens underneath the scoreboard, not to mention the, the two massive screens on the sideline and two on the baseline. Where did the idea for the elaborate underbelly design come from? You know, honestly, the first time that we ever saw that, we went into Madison Square Garden after their renovation. That was obviously an extensive renovation of an iconic building. And we walked in, we didn't know what to expect, but when we walked in, the first thing we were drawn to was the video board. They just did an amazing job. It's different than ours, but spectacular job. But one thing that jumped out was the screens they had underneath, and so that's it's brilliant. You know, you have your courtside customers, your lower-level customers, you know, who candidly pay more than anybody else to be in the building, and they can't see replays. They can't see what's going on on the video board. That is a big miss, I think, for most teams, and maybe the technology wasn't available, but you know, either way, it's something that needed to happen. So from the beginning, we knew that was something we wanted to be part of the presentation. In the end, we ended up with the largest screens you can possibly have underneath in the absolute highest HD quality. And, you know, what was surprising to me is it affects more than just those courtside customers. It extends all the way baseline to baseline in almost to 20 rows rows of the lower belt bowl. So it's number of those people can see the main screen but they're also going to see that HD clarity of the lower screens as well. Were there any other inspirations that went into the design of the scoreboard? You know, a lot of it came from all the work we did in the rebrand. You know, we went when we dug into this and looked at um, a lot of the data about what the fans wanted, it quickly became um, clear that they were passionate about the brand and they were passionate about the colors. 
So when we did all that research and started to build out what the brand was going to look like, it became our inspiration for everything. So whether it was the court or the uniforms or something like the scoreboard, you know, we know our DNA, we know what it looks like, we know what it feels like, and we want to make sure that it's implemented in every single piece of inventory that we have. What kind of feedback have you gotten from players or coaches or, or ownership on the, on the final design here? Well, that's just, ownership obviously is involved every step of the way. And, um, you know, MJC's, the designs, anytime we're working on a project of this magnitude, he's aware and signs off on it and he loves it. The players and the coach, you know, they've randomly maybe taken a peek at it, but it hasn't been completely unveiled to them yet. So I think the first time they'll probably get a chance to look at it is on media day. But based on their reaction to the court, based on their reactions to the uniform, I think they're going to love it. And, you know, I think we've, what we've found out during this entire process, and these guys really care about this presentation. They care about, you know, what they look like. They care about the brand that they stand for. And anytime we can do something to enhance that and make them feel better about the team that they're representing, we find out that it works well for us. And I think last year everything came together, you know, the, the brand and the uniforms in the court and the play on the court leading to our, that first playoff appearance as the New Hornets was a real special time for us, and we think this is another opportunity to build on that momentum. What will this board allow you to do as an organization with media and the fan experience in general that maybe the old board wouldn't have allowed you to do? Generally, it's more content, it's better content in the absolute highest visible quality available. So that's number one. I think the continuous size of the board allows you to project anything on there you know, completely different than you'd built it before. And then the connectivity to the four corner boards in the upper level into every single piece of LED in this building is what's really unique. So when we create content for our fans, it's not just focused on the board, it's in every area of the inner bowl. All right, here's the real important question, Pete. Is this the best scoreboard in the National Basketball Association? You know, there's some that are slightly bigger. There's none with better resolution, and there's certainly none that have the kind of design integrity that our has, ours has. So I think when you put all those pieces together, I know it's somewhat of a bold statement, but I really believe it. And I've seen there's great boards out there. We've seen them. We've been to almost every arena. Um, great visual presentations, but they don't really reflect what the team's about and what the brand's about. And I really believe that's what separates ours from everybody else. Pete Gwelly, he's the Executive Vice President and Chief Sales and Marketing Officer for the Charlotte Hornets. Pete, thanks so much for taking the time out to join Locked On Hornets. Big thanks to Pete Gwelly. He's the Executive Vice President and Chief Sales and Marketing Officer for the Charlotte Hornets. Also, a great Twitter follow, at Pete Gwelly, G-U-E-L-L-I. Now, Doug, I have not seen this thing in person. It looks like a beast. Uh, does it go? It doesn't quite go baseline to baseline, though. You've seen it in person. Are we looking at about the free throw line to the free throw line for the for the length of this beast? Yeah, that that sounds about right. I mean, you really have to see it in person to get a scope of of how large it is. I mean, the corner boards, the ones that sit in each corner, those screens that are on those corner boards are as big as the the previous scoreboard screens. So wow. so that's to give you a little bit of an idea of the size upgrade that happened with this scoreboard. Uh, there's something for you. But I think one of the other cool things that, that hasn't been mentioned yet is that the corner boards, the lighting, the scoreboard, and the ribbon boards are all tied together. And so yes. they, can, they can connect them. So if they feature a Kimball Walker highlight or a Kimball Walker something or other, the corner boards can have stats. The highlight goes up on the main board, 
and then uh, the ribbons uh, can have a Kimball Walker themed thing. So everything can right. sort of tie together. I think it's fantastic. I think anytime Charlotte uh, can stand out uh, amongst the NBA's best, I-, I think is really cool. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say a great talk there with Pete, and he did a great job of explaining the interconnectivity of those items. I mean, that's the cool part. My favorite part is, I got to be honest, the underbelly. I mean, that's the coolest thing to me because, you know, you look at a lot of these games, and I mean, there's never been a situation where you are sitting under something this large, but you can still look up and see a screen, right? I mean, that's so cool. I mean, I'm speaking, get back to football real quick. The, uh, the Tennessee Virginia Tech game. At Bristol Motor Speedway, there the, the, some tenuous, the tenuous scoreboard. Oh. I was so scared. Oh my goodness! But there must have been some of the worst seats in the history of sporting events. If you were low enough, where you were basically the same line of sight as the players. I mean, you couldn't see anything. I don't know if they could see that scoreboard looking straight up, but that made me think of this and just how nice it will be, um, you know, for those people up close. Because let's be honest, let's help them out. Just um, um, look up and see a screen. <laughs> well, it's it's nice for the people who are up close, but also I think the people in the 200 level are going to have mm-hmm. a, a little trouble deciding. It's a, a little like what happens at at the uh, at Bank of America Stadium with the Carolina Panthers. Sometimes I have trouble deciding whether I want to look at their new screens or look at the action happening down on the field. I think people in the 200 right. level at the Spectrum Center are going to be having those same debates because this screen is so huge, it's so bright, and you know you, you, you looking down, looking at it versus looking at the action. I don't know. It's going to be hey. it's going to be a debate. Yeah, do you think there's going to be some adjustment period, you know, for the Hornets? Is this thing going to be any distraction at all? You know what I mean? Well, I mean, someone so mentioned, huge. someone mentioned, I think it was on Reddit, that it's the underbelly screens have this also uh, unintended or maybe intended effect of providing the players. Because, you know, the players always look up, you know, after a foul, they're looking up for a replay or, or something or an out-of-bounds type of play. They're going to have two high-definition underbelly screens now to check themselves so that they do not, in fact, wreck themselves. Well, I won't look at anything less than 1080p these days. So, <laughs> thankfully, they put this in so I can watch the replays. Uh, well, yeah, and 4K is next. You know, uh, these Madison Square Garden or Staples Center, they're already trying to figure uh, out some yeah. way to, to up the game. All right, All right, also, we've gotten several versions of this question. Ever since the demise of the old scoreboard was even announced, what would happen to the city skyline models that draped the original Tron? For the answer, we go to Charlotte Sleuth and editor-in-chief of charlotteagenda.com, Andrew Dunn. Andrew, take it away. The skyline image at the top of the old scoreboard is actually a set, uh, two sets of 13 models. Each of them weighs about 100 pounds or so, uh, between 5 and 20 feet tall. So they all came down, but they've been preserved. So one set of 13 buildings is going to be turned into a parade float, actually. The city, which owns the arena, is handing over the set of models to Charlotte Center City Partners who's going to turn it into a parade flow for, you know, Thanksgiving Day parade, stuff like that. The other set of 13 models is going to kind of be loaned out on rotation. It's going to start out at the Charlotte Museum of History. So um, if you're feeling nostalgic for the old scoreboard, uh, uh, you're going to still be able to check it out. So there you have it, uh, Andrew, giving you the answer there. Make sure to check him out and and check out all the rest of the uh, Charlotte articles on charlotteagenda.com. And he did a more extensive write-up on it on charlotteagenda.com, so check that out. David, I have a very important question for you. Are you ready? 
Well, that's not the question, but are you ready for the question? Oh, okay, okay, yes, yes. Are you down with OPB? I absolutely am. I love that you coined this phrase. I do wonder. Uh, it's going to catch on. People, it, yeah, okay. okay. It, I mean, it, how many people catch the reference? You think, or I, maybe? Well, listen. Look at their parents. I feel like we're again. I feel like we are becoming the target market. And some of these retro things are coming back into fashion. I say OPB. That like stands it. for Other People's Basketball. It's time mm-hmm. to talk about Other People's Basketball. All this week, the Locked On NBA Network will be profiling some of the teams that the Hornets will be doing battle with in the Eastern Conference with the help of our other smart basketball people and host of the different Locked On podcast. We begin with the team that's right down I-85, the Atlanta Hawks. Joined now by Brad Rowland from Locked On Hawks. Brad, welcome in. Thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure, sir. Ready to talk some basketball as usual. It's kind of what we do these days, uh, really all the time. <laughs> that That is what we do. And, and I uh, was telling uh, my friend who's going to do the Wizards preview, uh, J- Jake Whitaker, that I, as much as I love talking about the Hornets, I also love talking about OPB, other people's basketball. So... <laughs> uh, it's it's good to have you in here talking about the Atlanta Hawks. Let's start with the Twitter version of the Hawks season coming up. Very short. What do fans need to know about the Atlanta Hawks? Uh, I would say it's going to be very different than previous years. So it's time to uh, move on from the Al Horford, Jeff Teague era and into the Dwight Howard led uh, maybe some Dennis Schroeder area. So it's going to be very different without Dwight How- without without Al Horford, I should say, and with Dwight Howard. So that's that's the short version. It's going to be it's going to look a little bit different than the last few years. Different, the key word for the Atlanta Hawks to the larger NBA audience. I think the Hawks are still viewed as a ball moving, three point shooting, efficient, Budenholzer offensive oriented team, but. That started to shift last season more to the defensive side of the ball. Do you think that trend continues this season? Absolutely. I think uh, it's a great point that you're, that you're making. I, I think even Hawks fans were slow to pick up on the fact that this was a defensive-led team last year. They were very, very good defensively and not as efficient as in years past offensively. I think it's almost going to be more so this year with the new regime and the changes. Uh, the defense, you know, it would be hard-pressed to be better than it was a year ago on a per-possession basis, but I think the offense is actually going to take even more of a step back. Uh, that might be me, uh, my negativity talking, but it's, this is definitely a defensive uh Defensive-oriented team, more than anything else, I'd be pretty surprised if this was a top-10 offense by any stretch. So it's going to be a defense that's uh, heavily relied on to uh, get stops and uh, really just generate extra possessions on the offensive end in order to uh, make this team stay uh, in the playoffs. The Hawks add Dwight Howard. Does this count as a reclamation project in your mind? I mean, in my mind, he had a decent season last year. The scoring dipped, but his efficiency offensively was still there. Uh, but I think he had a decent season for a guy who was disgruntled and, and in a weird situation there in Houston. Your thoughts? Yeah, I think it's a, a little bit overblown as to how, you know, quote, bad Dwight was a year ago. I don't think that uh, it was certainly not his best performance. Uh, and a lot of that could probably be traced to the fact that Houston was just a tire fire from top to bottom. And uh, Dwight was part of that but not all of it. I think he's catching a lot more blame for Houston's situation than he probably deserves. Uh, I do think that Dwight has taken a step back, though. Um, just you know, Some of that is age, some of that is injury stuff with his back and his knees uh, to the point where he's, not, he's just not the same player that he used to be. But at the same time, he, he was very efficient, like you said, offensively. And defensively, he's still an above-average 
uh, player on that end of the court. I think you know his lack of pure height and length uh, at the center spot is going to be uh, more of an issue as he gets older and is not quite as athletic as he used to be. But you know Howard's still certainly a, a, a great defensive rebounder and a very very good rim protector, uh, and that's something that people are starting to overlook. I think uh, nationally as people uh, sort of just blame him for things things going badly in Houston more so than uh, him just kind of being a part of that ugly puzzle. Which player do you think will be most important to Dwight Howard having a bounce back season? I would say Dennis Schroeder. Uh, there's really two choices. It's either Schroeder or Paul Millsap, but I'll go with Schroeder in that I think this team's going to be a lot more pick-and-roll oriented than they have been in the past. Uh, Al Horford was a pick-and-pop player for the most part. Uh, Schroeder is going to have the ball in his hands a ton. His usage is going to be through the roof. So I think uh, him partnering with Howard in the pick-and-roll is going to be very, very important for the Hawks offensively. Uh, and also Dwight just being willing to play the pick-and-roll all the time is a sort of a primary look. He's sort of famous for being a guy who likes to post up a lot. Uh, that's not something the Hawks really do a ton of. There'll probably be a little bit more of that with Dwight to kind of keep him happy. But the primary offensive uh, focal point, aside from Millsap, who's the best player, is going to be that, that Schroeder Howard pick and roll. So if Schroeder is as good as some people think he'll be, then Howard will have an easier time getting shots and getting you know high percentage looks around the rim. But if Schroeder struggles, it's going to really hamper Howard uh, and his efficiency offensively, I think. How do you think the Hawks' game plan will change to to try to benefit what Dennis Schroeder gives the Hawks that maybe Jeff Teague uh, did not or or did? It's going to be very interesting to watch how this offense sort of molds. I, you know, I, I've already said it, but I think pick and roll is going to be uh, a lot more of this offense than it's been in the past. Uh, you know, in the in the peak of the Budenholzer offense, it was a lot of ball movement, a lot of just you know, open guy takes the shot, sort of a five out system where everybody was kind of doing, uh, you know, working on a string together. This is going to be more of a. I think it might be slower paced. I think Schroeder's going to have the ball in his hands more than any Hawk has had the ball in their hands in quite some time. His you know, he's a guy who already had a high usage off the bench last year, but now in a starting role, he's going to have the ball a lot uh, and really be asked to really do everything offensively. So I think it's going to be a, a change in that area. And, you know, just to see how Dennis operates the offense, you know, a young guy in his first opportunity to uh, engineer a group like that, it's going to be certainly different. I don't think it's going to, it's going to be pretty early on. I do trust Budenholzer and his ability to sort of mold uh, an offense in a different way even without ever, ever seeing it. I think he's one of the better coaches in the league. So having a little bit of trust in him is going to be a more more optimistic path for this team. But if, if this was a run-of-the-mill coach with this roster, I'd be a lot more worried just because I'm not sure how the pieces are going to fit offensively, especially if that, if that pick-and-roll struggles with Schroeder and Howard. You bring in uh, journeyman Jarrett Jack and add Malcolm Delaney from Europe to back up uh, Schroeder. Who should win that backup point guard spot in your mind? For me, it's Delaney. Uh, that's sort of been an unpopular opinion because uh, I think it's pretty obvious that Jared Jack is a lot more famous than Malcolm Delaney. People know who Jared Jack is. He's a longtime, you know, solid NBA veteran point guard. But uh, Jack suffered an ACL injury last year in January to the point where it's not even confirmed that he'll be 100% ready to go for training camp. He does seem optimistic that he'll be ready to play. But, you know, Jack is not a great fit in this offense either. I think he's a guy who likes to uh, have the ball and really sort of a, known as a ball stopper, not a particularly efficient guy. And as he gets older, I don't think that Jack is going to be a great asset on the court. 
I do think he's a great add off the court in the locker room. Jack is a guy who everybody loves in the NBA. He's friends with everybody. You watch him before games, kind of interacting with the other team. Everybody knows Jared Jack. It's, it's kind of interesting. He's sort of a gregarious fellow. Um, but I think Delaney, uh, I've had an opportunity to watch a little bit of tape on him. Uh, I think he's getting more, more of a fit, more of a shooter, and the Hawks are going to need spacing this year. Uh, as they lose a lot of that going from Howard to from Horford to Howard and from Teague to Schroeder. So Delaney's shooting is going to be very nice off the bench. I think he's, uh, he'll be an underrated uh, part of this team and a very, very nice contract. Even though he is 27 years old, has not played in the NBA to this point. He was one of the better players in Europe last year. and I think he'll have a pretty easy transition uh, knowing how his game should fit Mike, Mike Budenholzer's uh, system and the way they want to play. You say that Atlanta is going to need all the shooting they can get. Let's talk about your best shooter, Kyle Korver. He set records with his three-point shooting two seasons ago. He made the all-star team, but certainly regressed last season. Does his three-point shooting need to rebound for the Hawks to be successful offensively this season? I do think it's very vital that he is a knockdown shooter. I don't, I don't think it's ever going to be where he was two years ago, where he was, you know, flirting with 50% from three for most of the season. Uh, that was just unrealistic for really anyone outside of Steph Curry. Uh, and Corver is, I think, in that class as a pure shooter, but as he gets another year older and the defenses are even going to be, you know, even more catered toward him this year, given the Hawks' uh, lack of shooting elsewhere. So I think he's going to have to have a nice season just to provide that spacing that everybody else needs to operate. But uh, I'm more worried about everybody else. Else that I am about Corver, I think it's pretty safe to say that he's going to be somewhere in that you know low to mid forties range from three, and that's obviously excellent for anyone. Even if it's a guy who's a you know a shooting specialist like Corver is, I think he'll uh, when he gets open looks, they're going to go in most of the time, and he'll have a full off season to work through his uh, shooting routine. Last year, he was uh, you know. He was fighting an injury uh, before last season and had some surgery, so that kind of cost him early in the year. He was pretty vocal about uh, getting out of his routine, and now with a full off season to, to work, he's sort of a, a workout warrior, whereas Corver is always in the gym going through his shooting routines. His pre-game routines are sort of famous shooting-wise, so I'm pretty, I'm pretty safe in assuming that Corver's going to have a nice shooting year, and it's just up to everybody else to pick up the slack elsewhere. Corver, a three-point shooting specialist, but what else does he give this Atlanta Hawks team? Uh, yeah, I've actually been pretty uh, pretty adamant, and people like to go back at me about this, but I think Corver is, uh, if not an average defensive player, somewhere very close to that. He's he's much. Uh, I think he's very underrated defensively. He's very long. He's about six seven, six seven and a half with long arms, and a very very physical defender. Not not a lockdown guy by any stretch, but a guy who's going to do his job getting passing lanes. He's one of the better shot blocking guards in the league, which is kind of hard to believe uh, if you're you know looking at him not thinking he's a great athlete or anything like. That. He's not explosive, but he's so long and so instinctive that Corbin does a very nice job defensively and just really having gravity on the offensive end. Um, everybody in the league is, is terrified of his shooting and with good reason. So even when he's not making shots or taking shots, he's really sort of sucking the defense away from the rim. And he's also a great, he's also a good passer. He's a good ball mover, a willing passer, not, not a guy who's going to force shots when they're not there. Uh, and he'll, he'll, he'll be quick to swing the ball. And because of all, all, all the attention that he attracts, it, it creates open shots for other people. People because he's so willing to just swing it to the next guy, whether that be Kent Bazemore or one of the point guards or Tato Cephaloshi, even somebody who's going to be open on the other side of the court. And Korver is a good facilitator in that way. So I think he's a pretty well-rounded player, a guy who doesn't get a ton of credit for all the things that he does offensively just because he's such a great shooter. And I think he sort of fits that mold of uh, the uh, the shooter white guy that you think about on the wing. But he does, he does, a, lot of, he does a lot of different things that I think go under the radar a lot. 
Let's talk about Ken Bazemore. You mentioned him uh, there in your last answer. He, he's a guy he finally kind of got his contract. Uh, do you, what are your expectations for Ken Bazemore? Where can he raise his game uh, to improve off of last season's sort of breakout performance? It's going to be interesting. Uh, I think the contract's just fine. You know, four years and you know, about $70 million seems like a ton of money for Kent Bazemore. But in this market, you know, $17 million is about the going rate for a starting wing, and that's what he is. I'm not sure he's going to be able to improve across the board. He's already 27. There's a, there's a possibility that last year was sort of his best season, but I think he can duplicate it. Um, I think the one thing, if you are looking for an area in which he can improve is his shooting. He had a really good start to last season, shot about 38, 39% from three in the first half, but really kind of cratered after that, was really struggling, shot about 28, 29% in the second half of the season from three. If he does that, it's going to be a real problem for the Hawks and that spacing is already going to be at a premium. He's going to be on the court for 30 plus minutes a game and he's really going to have to make open shots when they present themselves. Uh, outside of that, I think Bazemore is, you know, is better suited as a pure shooting guard, I think, on this team with Kyle Korver next to him. He's playing a lot of small four, getting a lot of small four defensive assignments, whereas he's only about six four and a half, six five. Um, but Baze does play big. He plays with energy and a guy who is a very, a very, very good defender. So I think he'll be able to uh, provide value, even if he doesn't shoot the ball at the way that uh, I think Hawks fans are hoping that he will. But even if he uh, just regresses a little bit there, he'll be, he'll be functional and be able to earn that contract. I'm just not sure that he's going to be a breakout player if Hawks are looking, for, if Hawks fans are looking for uh, a guy to take a massive step forward after signing that contract. I think they might be uh, a little bit disappointed because I think Kent's kind of who he is now. And that's a pretty good player, but not a, not a star by any stretch. Paul Millsap owed $20 million next season, but it is a player option. Where do you see the future being uh, with Paul Millsap and the Atlanta Hawks? Is he an Atlanta Hawk next season? I'd be pretty surprised if he exercised the player option. Uh, you know, Barring an injury for Paul, he's going to be getting offers that are much more than that on the open market. Uh, so, uh, you know, that's not great for the Hawks. I'm sure they're, they were, they'll be hoping that he exercises that option, but I, I just don't think it's going to happen. Uh, it's going to be very interesting to see where this team elects to go after this year. I think a lot of it's going to have to do with how they play. If this is a team that wins, you know, somewhere in that 40 win range and finishes like at the bottom end of the playoff race or even out of the playoffs, it's going to be very hard, uh, very hard to sell a, a long-term, a long-term contract for a guy who's going to be 32 years old and Millsap. He's easily, the best player on this team right now. There's no debate about that. But at the same time, you, you don't want to be locking up a guy for four or five years at age 32 when he's you, when, you know his best days are probably going to be behind him or at least uh, starting starting to be behind him by, by that point. Uh, it's going to be very interesting. I think them the Hawks dangling Millsap in trade negotiations sort of in the public uh, around the Dwight Howard, Al Horford stuff in July is going to hurt them in terms of getting Millsap to take maybe less money. I think he still likes it here, but Millsap's, I think the, the hometown discount sort of out the window with the way they they sort of treated that situation and Paul's going to be a professional and show up and play hard and do everything that he's asked to do but I think any goodwill or extra goodwill that happened that, that arrived there is probably gone now so if you ask me if I think he's gonna be back I would actually say no um that's not any inside information that's just me with my opinion I think if things go poorly that he, that he, could, he could even be traded at the deadline this year I doubt that's going to happen, but it's at least possible. And Millsap's going to get an offer of that four-year max, I think, after this year. And I'm just not sure the Hawks want to match that for a guy who's going to be 36 at the end of it. So it's going to be very fluid. There's no question about that. And if things go well, then maybe they just go ahead and lock him up. But Millsap's uh, played so well that he's going to be almost pricing himself out of the market, I think, for the Hawks. I think it's going to be yeah, extremely interesting what the Hawks decide to do with Paul Millsap and 
I I mean, I've talked about on the show how Paul Millsap could be an interesting prospect for the Charlotte Hornets if they were looking to make a trade uh, before the deadline uh, that uh, he he would fit, I think, nicely in the in the system and, and moving Marvin Williams down into the bench could help. Uh, solve some depth issues, especially shooting depth issues that the Hornets uh, could have later in the season. So it will be interesting for both fan bases to keep an eye on. I want to talk about your draft. Torian Prince and DeAndre Bembry get added to the Atlanta Hawks roster. Do you see either of these players being an impact player off the bench for the Atlanta Hawks next season? Uh, honestly, I I don't, but that's not because I don't like the I like the draft. I liked um, both picks, to be honest. Um, Prince was probably a little bit of a reach at twelve where they got him, but that's a guy I liked going into the draft. And Memory's a guy I absolutely love at twenty one where they picked him up. I just think the Hawks have you know four veteran wings ahead of them on the depth chart. One of those guys, Tim Hardaway Jr., is a player that I'm not really a big fan of. So if there's a situation in which Prince or Benbury crack the rotation. It'll probably be, be at the behest of uh, Hardaway Jr. sort of falling away from rotation. He was a guy who sort of vanished last year after after being acquired by the Hawks for a while. And the Hawks, uh, I don't think, lo- loved what they acquired in Hardaway Jr., though. He did come around last year by the end of the campaign. But, you know, there's not that obvious rotation spot for Prince or Benbury. Uh, both guys bring different things to the table. Benbury's more of a facilitator, more of a shooting guard, a guy who can create for others, whereas Prince is more of that hybrid 3-4 player. So I think uh, Prince is probably has the easier path because he can play a little bit of power forward, I think, um, and also just a bigger physical defender that the Hawks desperately need uh, to, when they're facing against the top flight wings in the league, like, Le- like LeBron James or Kevin Durant or Paul George. Right now, they don't really have that ideal defender for them. Those guys, so so having an option to throw a legit six eight, you know, big physical guy like Prince at one of those guys could be interesting. But in terms of uh, on opening day, I'm not sure either rookie is going to actually be in the firm rotation. For as much as I want to see more of them, uh, I'm just not sold that they're going to be able to jump the veterans by the time the season opens. Correct me if I'm wrong here, Brad, but when I look at this roster, one of the glaring weaknesses of this team that I see seems to be the lack of a go-to scorer. If you have to pick one or, or, or one one guy to step up or maybe develop as that go-to scorer, who is your best case scenario go-to scorer for the Atlanta Hawks? That's an interesting one. I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you that that's definitely a weakness. Uh, I think that if you ask me for one guy to go get a bucket, it's probably Paul Millsap. Uh, it's not a great situation. That that's not really Paul's strength. Uh, he's very good and crafty and getting his show, his own shot when when needed, but not your prototypical go to guy in that sense. I think Dennis Schroeder is going to get a lot of opportunities to prove his ability in this regard. I think he's going to have the ball in his hands in crunch time quite a bit, even if it's in two man games with Millsap. I think it's going to be a lot of Schroeder, and while I don't love that, I think the Hawks are going to give him the opportunity to sort of either create for others or create for himself. But not not having a wing guy who can really get his own shot is one of the bigger issues for this team. Starting Bazemore and Corver and having a guy like Cephalosha as the primary backup for those guys, none of those three guys really get their own shot. Bazemore can sort of do it, but Corver and Cephalosha are both non-creators in that sense. Uh, so it's going to be very interesting to see how they go. You know, it's not a new problem for the Hawks. And, you know, in the past, it's been Jeff Teague for the most part. So I think that's another reason why I would lean towards Schroeder in this instance. But Millsap does get a lot of touches late. And, I, you know, I think late game scenario, your most common lineup is going to be um, some, some sort of a two-man game between Schroeder and Millsap. And sort of whoever gets the best opportunity to get a shot wins in terms of who gets to take it. 
If you didn't know about the Atlanta Hawks, now you know he's Brad Rowland, host of the Locked On Hawks podcast here on the Locked On Podcast Network. You can also find him on SB Nation's PeachTreeHoops.com covering the Atlanta Hawks. Brad, you are one of the NBA podcasts that I that I pay attention to here on the Locked On Podcast Network because you do such a great job and you did a great job here uh, today. Thank you so much for joining us, Brad. Happy to do it anytime. I also listen to your show. You guys do a great job and uh, looking forward to the season, man. Great stuff there from Brad Rowland from the Locked On Hawks podcast. David, which of Atlanta's big men will the Hornets have to key in on most, do you think? Dwight Howard or Paul Millsap? I mean, it sounds like to me it's still going to be Millsap, right? As, as, yeah. as we mentioned there in that interview. Still their best player, um, and and Howard, as we know, you know, maybe not the offensive, or definitely not the offensive threat that Millsap is. So I still think it's going to be Millsap. Interesting conversation there, Doug. I mean, you think about that team, and a lot of questions. I mean, starting with their backcourt, right, about what they're going to be this year. And I think the main theme that I came away with from that chat was they're just going to be different. They're going to be different. They're going to have to find offense. They're going to have to manufacture offense because. They don't, they're not modeled after a team that is successful offensively in today's NBA. So they're going to have to have some guys step up and shoot a lot better than they have previously. So we'll look for that. But I agree with you, Paul Millsap. He stepped up his game last season when he played the Hornets, and especially he torched the Hornets both times that he showed up mm-hmm. to Time Warner Cable Arena. So they still have to key in on Paul Millsap. Luckily, Jeff Teague, who also played well against the Hornets, not there in Atlanta any longer. Uh, the Hornets, this is not the same Dwight Howard that wrecked the Bobcats in the playoffs when he was with the Orlando Magic. So I think the Hornets can find some ways to – Really, it's all about making sure that Dwight uh, gets the doesn't play the pick and roll a lot, and 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 you can sort of bait him into taking some bad post shots. So yeah. you know he's not the the greatest post player. So he's someone that I think, unlike a Greg Monroe or an Andre Drummond, that Cody Zeller could more easily stay with or bait into some some tougher shots. Whereas Paul Millsap, just deadly from every spot. He can, you know, he can pump fake, he can get into the mid post area and destroy you, or, you know, he can hide in the corner and knock down three point shots. Paul Millsap, still their best player, and and he's the he's the now all star. Whereas Dwight Howard was the then or is the then all star. Uh rebounding, of course, you're still gonna have to try and keep him off the boards there as you were talking there, and just made me think of that trying to keep him out of the paint. If you're going to have to check Millsap, which you are, um, you know, Howard is certainly going to be there for some rebounds, I guess, but that's, you know, we can get deeper into that, Doug. I just had that flash when you were talking about Dwight Howard there. Well, we will get deeper when the Hornets face off against Atlanta, and Brad already said he wants to come back and talk more uh, Atlanta versus yes. Charlotte when when that happens, when we get actual basketball. It's coming, people. Uh, make sure to tune in all week. We're going to be previewing the Wizards. We're going to be previewing the Celtics. We're going to be previewing the Pistons, who I know, David, I know you're really looking forward to that. We're talking to Dan Feldman. <laughs> Uh, from the Locked On Pistons podcast this afternoon, and that will air on Wednesday. That's the hot te- hot team in the East. Hottest, hottest of hot. 
All right. Thanks for listening to Locked on Hornets presented by Hive Talk Live. <laughs> Follow us on Twitter at Hive Talk Live. Subscribe on iTunes. While you're there, please give us a five-star review. Help hardcore Hornets fans just like yourself find this podcast. And we want to hear from you. It's We're, we're coming up on the season, folks. It's it's coming, uh, what, 44 days until we tip this thing off. And, and we want to hear from camp, you. Two weeks. Yeah, give us your questions. Um, media day is coming up. Training camp is coming up. So we want to be armed with your what what you're thinking, what's on your mind, what you want to ask these players. Let us know. Hive Talk Live is a presentation of SB Nations at thehive.com. For David, I'm Doug. Go Hornets. Go America. Let's swarm Charlotte. So what if I like to stay up late and watch TV? It's Ace's biggest LED light bulb sale of the year. Right now, buy one, get one free on our best-selling LED light bulbs. Our four-pack of LED bulbs is $9.99, and our two-pack of LED floodlights is only $12.99. Buy one, get one free. There's no limit on how much you can save, so stock up now. Hurry in. Buy one, get one free on long-lasting 10-year LED bulbs, now through Monday, only at your neighborhood Ace. See participating stores for details.